Queer Business Success, the podcast for LGBTQIA business owners, aspiring entrepreneurs, coaches, caregivers, and the allies who love our community. We tell the stories of why our businesses were formed, who we serve, our challenges and successes, and we offer sound advice to our fellow queer entrepreneurs. Our hope is to inspire, enlighten, and highlight the services that our LGBTQIA businesses and allies offer. If we can do this, so can you. We believe that we need more LGBTQIA business owners, not only for our community, but for a better world. Here's our host, Anne-Marie Zanza. Hi, welcome back to another episode of Queer Business Success. I'm so happy to welcome Jack Ori to the show today. Jack's pronouns are he, him, and he identifies as a transgender, demisexual, bi-romantic man. My goodness, Jack, that's a lot. I love it. So... Jack is someone who coaches trauma survivors and other neurodiverse people who want to write books. He focuses primarily on helping people write fiction. Along the way, we often they off people often discuss issues such as detaching from family disapproval. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so glad to be here. I'm so excited to have you. Okay. I would love to hear your queer story. Yeah, sure. So I am a late in life transitioner. I came out at the age of 33. Um, I was born in 1978. So when I was growing up, the transgender was not a thing. I mean, it wasn't. No. I didn't know anything about it. And so it's it always a, been a thing, but yeah. we didn't you just didn't yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I spent many, many years growing up trying to figure out why I couldn't remember that I was a girl. Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would think about um what my beard was going to look like when I grew up and then be like, oh yeah, I'm a girl. I'm not going to have one. That kind mm-hmm. of thing. And um, around fourth grade, things start to be really difficult because that's the age where boys don't want to play with girls. And I had, most of my friends up to that point had been boys. And then all of a sudden I had no friends because I didn't really relate to the girls in my class for the most part. And the boys didn't mm-hmm. want to play with me. So, but it took me like another 20 years to figure it all out. So, mm-hmm. you know, I mm-hmm. went all the way through school and then looking back, there were obviously from the time that I moved out and went to college or there were, there were obvious that who I was was trying to break out because I would do things like put a male pseudonym, like when I was on an internet forum and then be mm-hmm. like, oh, people don't realize I'm not really a man kind of thing and be like, feel guilty about it. But I was doing that kind of thing a lot or I would write about male characters and be like, I'm taking on this identity because of what I'm writing. And during that time was a very confusing time. And I was in a lot of relationships that were not healthy. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think because I would try to date these guys who were more feminine, but didn't accept that they were not traditionally masculine Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it was like a compromise (laughs) because we both had that feeling of, I don't fit my gender role, but I can't do anything about it. I don't understand. Um, Have, has any of your part, your former boyfriend, uh, former people who identified as um, boyfriends then, are any of them trans now? I'm just curious. Um, the very last one, which wasn't really a romantic relationship because we were friends and roommates and did everything together as if we were a romantic relationship. But she was all like, oh, no, we're just friends kind of mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. I was actually she transitioned shortly before I did. Oh, wow. 
So, wow. well, um, that's also like in the in the uh, sexual orientation world. A lot of times, closeted lesbians and closeted gay men are married to each other, and and it's a, one of them comes out, and then often the other one comes out either sometimes quickly after or years later. And I have had so many later in life lesbians in my groups whose husbands had come out on gay or they had come out as gay or trans actually at the same time. So oh, it's so very funny. interesting. Yeah. 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 yeah we find each other, even yeah. though we don't even know though, that we're doing it, <laughs> even though we're living a compulsory right. heterosexual life, we know who each other it's so subconscious. It's really cool. It's yeah. really subconscious, right? Yeah, it really is. And I think it was a thing too, like uh, where, like for me, I couldn't be like, I'm attracted to, I'm, I'm more attracted to women than men, even though I'm biromantic. Mm-hmm. So at the time it was like, I was trying to be this straight woman, but I'll be with guys who are more like women mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, mm-hmm. a lot of those relationships also were abusive on both sides because neither of us was comfortable with who we were and we're trying to be someone else and we're trying mm-hmm. to control everything. And it became a nightmare. And um, one of my partners was addicted to drugs. And unfortunately, shortly after I left, OD'd. So that oh, was so the tragic. Yeah, I'm so sorry. What have you liked best about your queer journey? So I actually love that I got to transition later in life because it gave me this kind of unique perspective like nowadays i write a lot from the point of view of cis females and cis women when i do my fiction and even though i'm not one because i was raised as a you were conditioned one yeah I, i experienced all the casual misogyny and all the unwanted touching and all the ways people treat women you know So I feel like that gives me a unique perspective as an ally and it gives me a unique perspective when I'm writing because it's sort of this vision where it's like, well, I'm male, but I grew up uh, socialized as a woman and treated as a woman. So I kind of know what it's like. And a lot of my cis female friends will be like, wow, we can talk about like stuff we can't talk about versus guy friends, you know, Mm -hmm. which is really cool. You know, I'm, Okay, uh, you're the first. I think you're the first trans man I've interviewed on air. Um, but I had my dear friend Olivia Olivia Hill, who actually is running for um, in Nashville. She's a trans woman, and she is um, running for Metro Council right now. And I interviewed her on my other podcast, Coming Out and Beyond. I think she's like episode nine or ten. And so she came, she transitioned in her mid fifties and uh, she, what she talked about was how much privilege she had as a man that she had no idea of the misogyny and the patriarchy that existed in this world. And she was also a vet. She also is a veteran. And also she had a very male job. You know, she was a head. She was the head. She, she, she's very public about all this. Um, but she was um, at Vanderbilt and she was a head of their power plant. So she had a very male job, you know, and she didn't like she did just didn't had no idea of the patriarchy that existed or the or the misogyny or anything like that. And like, she's just like blew her mind. And she also has this very unique perspective, which I think you have too, of having lived as two different genders in a yeah. very gendered world. So 
I got a million questions for you. We will get to your business. Don't worry. (laughs) So what is the, what are the like things that you talk about? Like for people, when people ask you, like, what are the differences as having existed as a female in this world now uh, before and now existing as a male and an out male, you know? So like what, what are the the contrasts? What are the stark contrasts? Yeah. So a lot of people don't, I, I have to be privileged enough that I look like a cis male. You look that. like a cis male. So, you really do. You do. That most people don't know. And so that. Unless kind of, you tell them. Right. Yeah. That kind of gives me more privilege than some trans people because some trans men like they can't grow beards or they like still continue to look feminine. And then they are in this sort of in between stuck place, which is really torturous. Mm-hmm. But because most of the time. Uh, occasionally I'll get some idiot like yelling at me because they'll see that I still have my chest and mm-hmm. they'll be like, oh, guy with uh, you know. And yeah, like, they'll make fun of you. Yeah, that kind of thing. But other than that, the really weird thing that happened right after I transitioned was I went to a new networking group I'd never been to before. The guys assumed I was a cis male. And so they were as racist and homophobic as they could be because they assumed that I agreed with them. Uh-huh. And that was like culture shock for me because I was yeah. like, what the, why where would you I, think where like, that's acceptable? Yeah. <laughs> I was just sort of like, okay, I don't want to be around these people. <laughs> but mm-hmm. it was like, it really like was clear, like how much of that, the culture of the cis men that were in that group was around this kind of male supremacy, white supremacy hetero supremacy garbage you know and wow. like because they didn't know i was trans they felt completely comfortable like saying those things to me i'm sure that happens to you a lot though people yeah. will say things to you just assuming because your 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 skin color is white and you look very male that you agree with them you know yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. How about any like how about the little stuff like like the like the more subtle stuff do you have any stories about that like you know like women, for example, you know, a lot of times people will hold doors for you and stuff like that. Well, men, they're not expected to do that. Or because someone assumes you've been acculturated as a man since you were a child, that you know exactly what you're supposed to do <laughs> with things like that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The expectation of your gender. Yeah. Anything like that. I mean, I am, well, I'm pretty out. So most of my friends knew that I was trans. So like the people I know, I don't really get a lot of that. I haven't really got, I, I'm trying to think if I've gotten anything more subtle than that, you know, like, cause a lot of times, you know, people will say things like, like it's kind of, what's kind of weird for me is like when people who know I'm trans will say things like, oh, all boys should be like this or all girls should be like this. Like, mm-hmm. um, my mom one time, because when my nephew was little, he had long hair and she was like, and, and he played with the same toys as the girls. And she was like, when's he going to learn he's a boy? And I was like, mom, you did not to say that. <laughs> 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 and so how was your, how was your mom and your, and I don't know if your dad's in your life or not, but yeah. your parents says, as you went through this transition, were they, how did they do? They were supportive once they understood it. At first they were kind of like, are you sure that this is really you? Maybe you're doing this because your friend is trans, you know, that kind of thing. Because, um, because but, you don't have your own mind. 
Right. Like, which I think is a common thing. And I think for my dad, especially because my dad is very open to it and he's a pediatrician. So I think that he probably was thinking, how did I not see the signs of this kind of mm-hmm. thing? Because when he was, he was just like, we never stopped you from wearing boys clothes. We never like told you girls had to be a certain way. And my dad is not a traditional man. Like he does a lot of cooking, a lot of cleaning and like, you know, he's not the stereotypical cis man anyway. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it never um, really bothered him as long as it was something I was doing because I really wanted to and not for so whatever reason he had in his head. <laughs> well, I'm glad you had a positive experience with your yeah. with your family. So tell me about your business. What do you do, Jack? Okay, so I do two things. I write novels for tra- for and about trauma survivors, and I have other trauma survivors and neurodivergent people who want to write books. I do coaching, which is basically, um, someone said to me today, it's basically like as if you had an agent or editor who is also your writing coach and mentor, which... Wow, that's a lot pretty, of hats to wear. Yeah, which yeah. is a free... I really love that description, except for with the caveat that I don't have any connections with traditional publishing houses, so I could not be your agent if that's right. where you wanted to go. But basically what I do is I help people who standard writing advice doesn't work for them because a lot of times when you look at, uh, at books about how to write or about the internet, you'll find things like... What you have to do is sit down and write every day. What you have to do is fit it, fit it, write an outline first so that you don't get stuck or, you know, all these kinds of advice that don't, that are not one size fit all. And especially right. if you are neurodivergent, which I'm autistic and possibly ADHD. I've diagnosed autistic, but my nephew's ADHD. And so I feel like, I feel You're a like, lot oh of my time. gosh, he's me. <laughs> and so I see a lot of signs of like in my in family and stuff. But anyway, like if you're autistic ADHD or even if you don't have those things, but you do have a trauma, significant trauma history, the kind of advice is not going to work for you because you don't have the attention span. You don't have the concentration. You don't have the, you know, it's very neurotypical based. And so what I do is I provide people with other options. I we talk about, you know, here are some things you can do instead of writing every day, block out times on your calendar that are your writing times. And that way, if you don't write on Tuesday, but you know you have time on Thursday that you're planning to write, you don't have to freak out and be like, oh, my right. God, I'm never going to write. Um, right. Right. Yeah. And so I teach people skills like that. Or we talk. I talk a lot about the character-centered method because what I do is I teach people how to create characters and figure out where their character is going and then write the story around that. Um, and not everyone wants to outline. So I teach people like, if you don't want to outline, here's a minimal planning that you can do so that you have a lot of freedom. Here's how to outline after you've written a draft, which is what I do. <laughs> like, right, mm-hmm. get it down first and then worry about creating. What I do is I start creating an outline for what I've already written and that usually gives me more ideas and I go completely off and write a new draft that's not, that doesn't look anything like the old one. <laughs> So, <laughs> so, you know, so I teach people all those things and I do some group programs. Um, I'm designing some group programs now, like some master classes around how to use the character center method, how to how to uh, use software to help you stay organized, what tech tools you can use, how to revise all um, and mindset stuff like how do you get past that feeling of, oh, my God, this should go in the trash. You know, mm-hmm. that's a big one that a lot of writers 
struggle with. Um, I also help with editing if somebody needs editing or they need somebody to just read it. And so I do a lot with writers, basically. Yeah, it sounds like you uh, are uh, you really do a lot of different aspects of this. Um, That feeling of wanting to throw something in the trash, that it's not good enough. How do you work with your writers around that? So a couple of things. One, there's a little bit of hand-holding sometimes because sometimes I'll read something for them and when I give them the positive feedback, they'll be like, are are you sure? You sure Mm -hmm. you're not saying what I want to hear? You can tell me if it's garbage. And so like going through that process and then giving them the specific praise of, you know, when you wrote this part, it really made me feel this. Or, you know, one of my clients recently I had to read her slowly because some of the things she'd written like really were like emotionally affecting me. And so to tell you that scene was so emotional because it's so authentic. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's, it's really good writing. writing. Yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So like just giving those specifics really helps because specific praise such as this scene affected me like this is much better than, oh, this is really good, which anyone can say. It doesn't mean anything. So that's right. one way. And then sometimes I might look at if I'm doing a one-on-one with somebody, I might look at the specific beliefs, you know, like mm-hmm. what is it that makes you think this belongs in the trash? Let's look at that. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I also, I have, I, I have an LMSW, so I can do which master licensed master social worker. So mm-hmm. I do have like the ability to like get into that kind of counseling coaching ability. So I've worn like 10 million hats. I've gone to school like more times you don't want to know what my student loans look like. <laughs> <laughs> um, when you when we when I read your bio, you talked about like when people write that oftentimes it um underco- and um it uncovers family trauma. Yeah. Um, which I think is pretty normal. I mean, especially a lot of times we write what we know, right? And so what are some of the things that you help people do with you know, when they st- like, I, I think that I would, okay, I'm going to ask, I mean, my assumption would be, is that there are, there's like the people that know that they have trauma and they write about it and, you know, it opens up something that inside of them. And then the people who deny that they've had trauma, which there's a lot of people that right. deny <laughs> until they right. realize, oh, wait a minute, this was trauma, you know, and then all of a sudden, like all kinds of things open to them right. for them. So how do you work with people in their writing that really discover either about their like and also trauma, as I know about trauma, is that, you know, we may approach it one way when we're in our 20s and then when we're in our 30s, we may approach it a totally different right. way. Yeah. Right. So what are some of the things that you do? Right. So it all depends on like where the person's at with it. Like one of the things that's really important to me is helping writers learn self-care. Mm-hmm. When you're writing something traumatic. You can re-traumatize yourself if you're not Absolutely, yeah. You don't want to do that. So, you know, teaching people how to recognize when they need to take a break, you know, mm-hmm. that they, mm-hmm. and that goes back to that whole, you don't need to write every day because if you're writing about something traumatic, you can't. You're going to, like, destroy yourself if you do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, encouraging people to take breaks as needed and, like, also, like, just talking about people about what trauma is and making it cl- and, you know, and identifying it and making sure that they know that even if this didn't seem like a big deal to you at the time where, you know, people who had worse things, that doesn't make your feelings invalid. 
Right. And so I think that's really important for people because sometimes somebody will be like, well, it wasn't so bad. I mean, my parents loved me and I had a good life. I just couldn't be happy because this happened or I couldn't be happy because I was closeted or whatever the case Mm -hmm. may be. But it wasn't so bad. It's not like I was beaten. It's not like I was thrown out of the house. And it's really important to me personally that people realize that the trauma of their personal existence does not have to be competition. When I was first coming out as trans and I was upset because my parents were not able to remember my pronoun and name. And so they were like not consistently using it. And I had somebody tell me, you should just be grateful because some parents kick their trans kids out of their house. And it was just kind of like, that's not helpful. That's (laughs) the opposite of helpful. So I try to like make clear to people that's not a thing. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, what is the most, the biggest challenge in your business, Jack? So I think the biggest challenge is connecting with people who are in that space to write, who have the, and who have both the time, the energy, and the, and the money. Because unfortunately, a lot of people who are either neurodivergent or of trauma also mm-hmm. are low income because they're not able to um, do what they need to do to make a lot of money. Mm-hmm. You know, or their circumstances of their life dictated their partner is not there or whatever to mm-hmm. be. And so that's really challenging because a lot of, and that's why I've like started doing sliding scales because a lot of times people will be like the perfect client, but they'll be like, I can't afford your fees otherwise, mm-hmm. you know? So mm-hmm. I started to try to be like more loose with that because otherwise I'm really helping the people I want to help. Mm-hmm. And, I think just fine. And I think that it can be challenging too to find those people because a lot of people, like you said, who have trauma don't realize it. Right. So like, right. so like people might be like, well, it's really cool that you're writing. I don't know if you're for me because you're talking about trauma. And I don't think that's me kind of thing. Or like, Well, I'm going to agree it. with, yeah, I'm going to agree it with that because when you say, oh, you've had trauma to someone people become naturally very defensive of their upbringing and of their family. I I think that it is a value that society teaches us. So it takes a while. So for me, I usually use the word chaotic. I say, you know, uh, like, like when I describe someone who's come out later in life, they, you know, I, you know, a female, um, they often come from a chaotic background, um, you know, and there's a bunch of other things too, but I use the word chaotic because if I use trauma, that shuts people down. Yeah. People, people don't like that word. Oh, yeah. And I've also Unless started- you're in like, like, you, you know, you're, you're, you come from the social work, work right. background. I come from chaplaincy and ministry. I mean, we can throw the word trauma around all the time and not have it make us, we don't even blink. Right. But for, for a lot of people, right. that is it's, a scary word, right? It is it's a scary word. Nobody wants to think that like they're quote unquote broken, which you're not if you have trauma, but no, absolutely people think not. it. People are right. like, I'm not broken. And that's why people don't seek therapy or they turn to substances or whatever it is that they do because they don't want to have that feeling like something is wrong with them, which is not what the issue is because I always say like, your trauma responses are not are unhealthy responses. A healthy response to like a crazy environment 
Mm-hmm. Like, with all mm-hmm. this chaos that you're like that you're in of course you're gonna act that way like it makes sense so well yeah I mean for years I always had a lot of shame that I like did a lot of drugs right after high school for about three or four years I didn't go to college right away I didn't go to college till I was 22 I went for a year and then I didn't go back until I was 22 and I always had a lot of shame about that and then like I don't know I got older and um, I'm like, my goodness, my my dad was an alcohol, raging alcoholic my whole childhood. Right. That's how I was taught. Right. I, mean, I almost had like a preordained way of doing dealing with things. And, you know, you um, and, and here's my trauma speaking right now. My dad stopped drinking when I was 18 and was sober for 25 years. But the damage was done at that point. Right. Right. And yeah. and. You know, I it's like I have like since then given myself a tremendous amount of grace around that because I was like, well, and also it was really, really normal for a lot of kids to be like that, but not in the world that I came from, you know, where right. everybody goes to college, everybody does this and everybody does that. And right. I didn't, you know, I didn't right. go until I was, you know, older. And then I right. went like a rocket because I was ready to get it over with, you know? Right. I can relate yeah. to that because my, bro- my older brother didn't go right away. And so there was this double pressure on me because it's like, oh, my God, your brother's so smart. If he didn't go to college, well, you'd better go because we can't have two kids, that, especially with a father with an advanced degree. I don't know if your mother had one, too, but your dad had an advanced degree. And, and so right. there's probably a lot of pressure. Yeah. You and your brother to do, you know, yeah. to go to school. You know, yeah. Yeah. my brother, yeah, my brother actually went back when he was 27. He decided to go to school and my sister was starting college at the same time. So they were freshmen at the same time. Oh, that's kind of funny. That's- <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean, my brother and I are both artistic kind of people. He he's a musician. I'm a writer. So, you know, we did sometimes we were yeah. traditional kind of people. Right. And sometimes that's I am I as as the mother of four and have seen my kids all do college and stuff like that. I don't I am not I'm not somebody that believes that everybody has to go to college. Yeah, I just I don't either. I no. just don't. And it's not for everybody. And and there's certain professions that definitely don't need a college right. degree. And my and sister so, always says too, like she talks about how she, she was 17 when she graduated high school. She was like, she decided to go to the college she went to because it was in a warm area where she could get a tan. And she was like, great reason to choose a school. This is why 17 year olds should not be making these kinds of decisions. You know? Well, yeah, my youngest, my third child went to went to Florida. So I get that. <laughs> so tell me what's the what's the thing are you most proud of, Jack? So I'm really proud of two things. One is that on my novel, Reinventing Hannah, I have reviews from people on Amazon and Goodreads that are like, this book really helped me with my own healing journey. So that feels really good because that's who I wrote it for. What is Reinventing? Can you tell me what Reinventing Hannah is about? Yeah, so Reinventing Hannah is about a 16-year-old girl who becomes a survivor of a drug-facilitated sexual assault. So she goes, Mm -hmm. she's like a straight arrow kid who doesn't... uh, who doesn't break the rules because she's like, but that's not who she really is. She's just like, she doesn't want to be like her mom who's bipolar. So Mm -hmm. she tries to be like this perfect kid. And then she goes to a frat party type situation because her friend is going and she wants to watch her friend 
comes back and she's the one who ends up getting assaulted. And afterwards, she goes on this transformative journey where she stops being this quiet girl that everyone calls Mouse and starts being who she really is. She starts dating the guy that she wants to date that her friends don't approve of. And her and she starts eventually talking about what happened to her. And she ends up going on this journey where she ends up becoming an advocate who um, is talking about what's going on and like trying to help other survivors instead of, and it's more or less, it's mostly about it, the, the underlying theme is she's becoming more authentic and calling more of who she is. And I think it's interesting too, is it's like a lot of people assume it's about a trans girl because I'm trans. And trans yeah. Of course, that's the only thing you can yeah. write about, right, Jack? <laughs> <laughs> because the reinventing Hannah, they assume it's somebody transitioning. And she is transitioning, but it's not a gender transition. She's transitioning into this more assertive person who's being, who's putting herself first and not being what everyone wants her to be. Well, is it a YA novel? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really interested in that. I'm going to pick it up and read it myself. Yeah. And that's really interesting because I think that a lot of times the theme of life is making meaning from bad stuff. Yeah. And it sounds like Hannah, from what you tell in the novel, has like something horrible happens to her and she ends up making meaning out of her own pain. Yeah, it's really yeah, definitely what it is. And I wanted to do that because I read a lot of YA novels that are about sexual assault and they're wonderful books. However, they follow this formula where it's like, the survivor has this horrible thing happen. They don't tell anyone. They self-destruct for 300 pages. Then they tell someone and they feel better at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I'm tired of that. Right. I want to write something about somebody who's not doing that. That's not the only way that it affects people. Well, yeah. And it's also still the, and also the messages is you should be, it, the messages, there's two messages. One message is that you should be quiet when stuff happens to you. And and then, you know, I mean, I guess the message it, but there is the oh, not everybody's quiet when something. Bad right. Happens to them. right. Right. That's the you thing know, sometimes like, people are like, wait a minute, this was wrong. This should yeah. not have happened to me. Yeah. Don't make me responsible for right. being victimized. Right. And I think like the these other books, I think their tr- their message is intended to be empowering because when the person finally speaks up, it helps. Mm-hmm. But it's like after that's at the end of the book, and I'm like, wait, what happened there for they speak up? Yeah, like, that's the story well, yeah. I wanted to tell. Yeah, so like that sounds you, really cool. That sounds like a really great book. I'm really, I'm, I love to read it. So awesome. yeah, so um, I guess my my what's your one piece of advice question would be for you, Jack? Is you're a very beginning writer, like you think you have a story to tell. What would be your one piece of advice to someone who is like, I know I have a story to tell. I just don't know how to do it. So my one piece of advice is just start somewhere because you can't edit a blank page. So, you know, write down, like, even if you're just writing a character sketch or writing down the idea of the story or you're writing down um, this story is about this, this happens to this person. That's all your idea is start jump in like experiment don't be afraid to make a mess 
Mm-hmm. I can always clean it up later. And really, my book started that way. Like I was, uh, I was sitting. So I don't remember where I was at a writers' conference, I think. And I was listening to a speech. All of a sudden, I had this idea pop into my head: teenage girl deals with being sexually assaulted on Halloween, and that mm-hmm. was the whole idea. And my first few drafts were not the book that it is. It is now, yeah. Yeah. I was trying to figure out, like, what happens to her? How do I want to approach this? Who who else is in this book? Why did it happen? What is she going to do about it? You know, all mm-hmm. of those things came out as I was writing. And, you know, so you write the first draft and then you go back and you're like, whoa, OK, um, I really like this subplot. I Nothing happens in this part. I don't like this part. Let's figure this out some more, you know, mm-hmm. and then. I always call like this style of writing the plot maze because you're kind of going through this maze where you're writing and then you hit a dead end. So you realize, mm-hmm. okay, I went the wrong way. Let me turn around and try again. Mm-hmm. And, and eventually you get to the end of the maze where you have the story the way you want it. Yeah. And it, and it's process, right? It doesn't, yeah. nobody writes, sits down and writes a book in three hours. <laughs> right. That Some doesn't, people do. Any, very few people. <laughs> well, there's always these courses out there that say, yeah. oh, you can have your book written in, the, in a weekend. And it's probably very formula, formulaic, but, yeah. you know, yeah. I'm sure you can if you follow a specific formula or if you're not uh very great writer yeah if you're not very i'm trying to like not put other people down but like if you're not very concerned about the quality you probably Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. well or if you're just somebody that has something like a i think it would be really appropriate for somebody who has a message to get out and they want to get it out quickly right and they're not a writer and they know they're not a writer. So right. the formula probably works really well. For right. Them. The formula works for them. And then the other thing is if you've had this idea in your head for like a year, but you've never tried writing it, it might have been like percolating. So when you sit down, you just sit down and write it because you've already like created it you've in your head. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Jack, how do people find you? Um, so a couple of ways. Um, I'm on Facebook. My Facebook is coach and author Jack Oree. Mm-hmm. I am on Twitter, Instagram, and uh, I think Threads. I just opened a Threads account, so don't. You were brave too. There. I did too. I, <laughs> so I, I haven't posted event. anything there, but if you want to like follow me there, even though I have nothing posted there, you can. Anyway, all those places I'm author Jack Orig. So, um, and you can also my email is Jack at um, at Jack Ori. Oh, sorry, Jack at author Jack uh, so any of those places, and my website is authorjackory.com. Like, so it's all pretty consistent, <laughs> except for Facebook. I I stuck in the coach, coach and author instead of author. So just author, every place else is just author Jackory. All right, author Jackory. It was so nice talking to you on the show today. Thank you oh. so much for being here. Thank you for having me. This was great. You've been listening to Queer Business Success, the podcast that highlights LGBTQIA businesses. New episodes are published regularly on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and other listening platforms. Wherever you're listening, take a moment to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. Are you an entrepreneur who's also queer? Want to share some of your wisdom and experience with the rest of us? We'd love to have you on the show. Just click the link in the show notes to apply to be a guest. 
Until next time, queer friends and allies, keep taking care of business.